Good morning, everyone. It's like really close. And I'll just step it back a little. Um, a lot of our youth and students are away at a change conference, um, but for them or for anyone, uh, we have these sermon worksheets in the lobby. So if you're coming in and you want to be able to take notes or anything like that, there's seven questions here uh, that guide you through the message, and basically you can take notes. So parents, take note of that. That's for junior and senior highs, but adults, if you want to do it, you can do it too. And I'll just leave these up here. Don't be shy if you want one. Or you can go out the back way if you are a little shy. Um, we're continuing in our series in James. We're in James 1, 19 to 27. So if you want to get your phones out or your Bibles out and go to James chapter 1, we're going to be in verses 19 to 27. And uh, philosophers and writers um, for centuries have struggled with a profound question of our existence. And they ask the question, is our primary identity, is the root of our existence in our being or in our doing? In other words, is it more important for who we are in our identity of who we be or in what we do? And is shown up in art and philosophy through the centuries. William Shakespeare asked the profound question, to be or not to be, this is the question. In 1905, the philosopher Carl Jung speaks very authoritatively. He says, you are what you do. And then a little more recent times, the great poets of the 70s, the Bee Gees, well, they got in with, doobie, doobie, do. So... There you can go, you can sort of figure out, you know, where do you land on this spectrum of doing or being, and uh, I think the Bee Gees definitely had the catchiest approach to it. Um, it's an important question, though. It's one we face every day, whether we realize it or not, because everyone, all humans, wake up in the morning with a set of beliefs. They have a set of beliefs about the kind of person that they are, and then they act out of those beliefs of the kind of person that they think they are. And they go about their day engaged in activities that reflect those beliefs. So the question may not be what is more important, but rather what tells the truer story of our identity. Is who we say we are the true story of our identity? What we say we believe, is that the true story of our identity? Or is what we do a truer story? and a truer reflection of our identity. Well, you can kind of guess where James falls on this question. He says, be doers. And as he observes his beloved brothers and sisters tested under the pressure and persecution of the world around them, as we mentioned in the beginning, he sees cracks forming between who they say they are as believers of Jesus Christ and how they are acting or what they are doing as believers in Jesus Christ. Their doing is not aligning with their being. And even more importantly to James, their behavior is not exhibiting the blessing of who they claim to be. They profess to be Christians, they claim to follow Jesus, and yet they appear to have no evidence of the blessing of that being a Jesus follower. 
Rather than having life and liberty, they are full of anger and impurity and wickedness. And so as James is inspecting these things in the very, very, very early church, we're probably only in AD 45 or maybe AD 50 here, the very early church, James is inspecting these things and he pinpoints a fault in the foundation of the church. Their use and their understanding of God's word is what he's going to zero in on. How they are using the word of God as a foundation to their faith is flawed. And if your foundation is unstable, then it only takes a little tremor to cause a collapse. And if the ground shifts under your feet or my feet in our life, as the ground shifts under the circumstances that we face, if something comes along in life and rattles us, then the cracks get wider. So I don't know where you're at today. Maybe there are some cracks appearing in the foundation of your faith, and you're not sure where your faith is at. And maybe there's things going on in your life that feel like persecution and testing and temptation, and those cracks are widening. Well, if that's what's going on, you're the kind of Christian that James is writing to in this early church. The faith inspector, James, has come along with some help for us to see how and where we turn to in order to get those cracks filled in, in order to get our foundation aligned with our walls and prevent the collapse. And so I'm just going to pray, and then we're going to look into, again, as I said, James chapter 1, 19 to 27. Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for James and his inspection of the early church, and we thank you that his word remains true from century to century, from church to church, from nation to nation, from person to person, from Christian to Christian. Your word is steadfast and true. And so we know that this applies to our lives right here and now. And so by your Holy Spirit, help us do that. In Christ's name, amen. So remember last week, James said, we finished off last week, James said that God brings Christians into being by his will and by his word. To become something new, a first fruit. He says, of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. And now James is going to naturally go into a little bit of a description of what first fruit people are meant to be like. There's something that he wants his brothers and sisters to make note of if they've been born of the will and the word of God. And so that's how he starts it out. He starts it out, know this, or make note of this, my beloved brothers. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness, and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. But be doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word, and not a doer, he's like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself, and he goes away, and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing." If anyone thinks he's religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. 
So I sort of separated out the central text there with some spacing, and you can see that James opens with a basic introduction to the thought that he wants to get across. Um, he, he's talking to his beloved brothers and sisters, and James assumes here that he's talking to Christians in the main. He's writing this letter to the church. He's writing this letter to people he sincerely believes are followers of Jesus. He calls them beloved brothers and sisters. James assumes that they're Christians. He knows that not everyone who hears his teaching will be Christians, but this is the people I love. It's you, brothers and sisters, who I see behaving this way as Christians, and if you are born of the will and the word of God, if you are first fruits, then it will be apparent by what flows out of you when you're pressed. You've all noticed that about fruit, right? When you press it, something comes out. When you put fruit under pressure, something squirts out. Well, that's not James's analogy, that's mine, just because he said first fruits, okay? But it's the same idea. James is saying, I'm observing something that is coming out of you as first fruit people, and it's not what I was expecting to come out. It's not what I expected to be produced. He says, anger does not produce the righteousness of God. Anger is not the mature reaction I expected of you when your church came under pressure. The fact that James addresses anger right off the bat is an indication of what he was seeing in this young church. All across the Middle East and farther, this church had been scattered. It was persecuted by foreign powers. It was persecuted by its own people. It was under attack by a pagan culture that hated what it had to say about their idolatry and immoral practices. And as a result of this pressure and this intolerance of the culture, Christians were getting angry. And James was looking out across the churches scattered, and he had churches full of angry Christians on his hands. They were angry about the persecution, angry about the constant testing and temptations, angry about the pressure on them. And James says, hold up here, church. You are zealous for the righteousness of God, and that's good that you are zealous for the righteousness of God, but being angry does not produce the righteousness of God. It's not your job to be angry Christians to bring about what God is trying to accomplish. Your anger is not going to bring it about. Brothers and sisters, when you are under pressure, listen first. Speak cautiously. Don't react with quick, hot anger. Instead, James says, we're going to put away that old way of being and acting, and we're going to receive a new thing. He says, put away, therefore. Oh, yeah, they were getting angry. See that? He says, put away, therefore filthiness and wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls and right away in that putting away or casting off it means that we had it in our possession to begin with and so James says I know I know you came into this faith young Christians young church you came into your faith in Jesus Christ with all this anger and malice and you react to the world the way the world reacts to you somebody pokes you in the eye you poke them back I get it that's what you possess but you need to put that off you need to cast that away you need to drop that old nation nature and and that malice that's prevalent in our lives so a process has to start here that James says is that we're going to put away or cast off all that we have and we are going to receive, and the word receive means we're going to pick something up that we don't have. So young Christian, you're putting off that old nature and you're receiving something new. And what is it we receive? We receive with humility the implanted word. There's the word of God again. 
So along with the image of fertility, the implanted word that James started with are being born by the word of God. It's now an implanted word of God. So we're born by being implanted with the word of God. It's this idea of a seed that's expected to take root and grow into something. And so for faith inspector James, the word of God and how we receive the word is going to be his central lesson for us. Right? This is going to be a James talking to young Christians about how the word is meant to be living and active in their life. And that's how the righteousness of God is going to come about. And that's where we get to the middle paragraph. This is the core of the text, one of the most famous texts out of James. He says, but be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror, for he looks at himself and he goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. So it's doing and hearing. It's hearing and doing. It's hearer and doer. Of what? What is the hearing and doing? It is the word. It is the law. It is the perfect law. It is the law of liberty. So if repetition being the highest form of emphasis, it's not hard to figure out at least the topic that James is talking about here. He's talking about hearing and doing the word and the law. Right? That's what this is about. It's about the word and what happens when we read it. So what is the right way to become first fruits and to achieve the righteousness of God then? Christians who are born of the will and the word of God, who have humbly received the word, and it is implanted in them like good seed that's germinating in garden soil, will be changed by that word. That's James's message. The seed of the word will grow into a life of righteous doing. In fact, James is going to go on to say that it's going to grow up into a life of blessed doing. Is there anybody here who wants blessing in their doing of their life? Anybody here who would turn away blessing at this point? That as they go through life and they are doing things, wouldn't it be good if your doing was blessed in everything that you do? I'll sign up for that, right? That's what we want as we go through life. We want to be blessed in our doing. And James says, actually, there is a way that you can be blessed in your doing, and it comes from the Word of God. James, in other words, is saying, who we be as Christians, produces what we do. And this is the illustration that James uses here in his teaching. Um, I don't have a mirror here, but pretend my phone is a mirror, right? I have a mirror. Somebody give me a Bible. I didn't even bring a Bible up here because it's on my phone. Can't, my phone can't be a Bible. Yeah, you can throw it. It's okay. Okay. So I have a phone here. Pretend my phone is a mirror. So this is how it starts. He looks at the mirror, and he says, a man looks into the mirror. You get up in the morning, and you study yourself in the mirror, And you look intently, and you see in the mirror, well, you see flaws, right? And and you see problems. You see you're getting old. Actually, I'm pretty handsome. (laughs) I'm not going to lie. I'm a good-looking guy. But you look intently in the mirror is James's thing. This is what's going on in this illustration. James says you look intently in the mirror, but then you go away from the mirror... James says, you've studied it, you turn away, you put the mirror down, and immediately, James says, like a natural man, he forgets what he saw. He doesn't remember what he looks like. You saw yourself clearly, and yet you turn away from that mirror, and you go on with your day, and you don't remember what you look like. 
You don't remember the flaws. You don't remember the good things either. You just don't remember. Now, it's worth noting here that James has been talking about receiving the word and doers of the word. And so he changes his reference to law. The perfect law of liberty is what he's going to look into. But it's all the word. The word is the law. And we're going to come back to that and point out in a moment. But just notice the word change that the word is like looking in a mirror and the law of liberty is like a man who looks into the word or into the law. And so James says the one who looks into the scriptures and so he, now you take a mirror and James says you're looking intently into the scripture. And so you get up in the morning and you're looking at scripture and you're intently looking at it and you're studying it and you're perceiving yourself in the scripture. And he says that person looks into the perfect law of liberty, the complete instruction of freedom, and then that one perseveres, or he endures, or he remains steadfast. So when he goes away in the morning, and he sets the word aside, and he's done with it, and he's finished with it, he does not forget what they saw. But they continue on in the knowledge that they discovered in the word, and they remain changed by what they saw in the word. Or in the law. They conform themselves to the word rather than conforming the word to them. Because here's the thing when we look into the Bible, the Bible rightly shows us who we are. That's why James is making this illustration. The, the Bible is like a mirror, but it doesn't just, and it shows you accurately who you are. So do not come away from the scripture and forget what it showed you, is what James is saying. And he says that's what Christians are to be. That's, they are to be people who persevere in what they say. And the Bible doesn't show us who we are in like a cosmetic way or a surface way or a temporary way. The Bible shows us who we really are in a permanent, penetrating, and persevering way. You see, to keep the analogy going, a literal mirror cannot change you. A literal mirror just passively reflects whatever you bring to it. It feeds back to you exactly what you put in front of it. But the Bible is not passive. It does not merely reflect who you really are, but it transforms you. If you will look into it faithfully. The irony is is that many people actually do use the Bible as though it's a literal mirror. A lot of people, many who claim to be Christians, take the Bible, they hold it up, And instead of the Bible showing them who they are, they show the Bible what it should be. And they somehow come away from looking at the Bible and saying, it agrees with everything I say. I I like what I see in the Bible because it agrees with me that I'm a good person. And they somehow manage to use the Bible to just decide that the Bible reflects back on them that they're fine the way they are. And they have no need to change anything. The late Tim Keller summarized this observation so eloquently In one of his posts, one of his essays, he says, Only if your God can outrage and challenge you will you know that you worship the real God and not a figment of your imagination. If your God never disagrees with you, you might just be worshiping an idealized version of yourself. And that's what a lot of people do. They hold up the Bible and they say, hey, I'm all right. The Bible's not, nothing threatening here to me at all. Well, you're not reading your Bible then. And you're not worshiping God. You're just worshiping yourself. And far too many approach the Bible that second way. They never see anything disagreeable. They glance at it or they don't look too closely. They decide or prefer to invent their own version of reality. To them, their anger is justified. They don't need to forgive and love their enemy because they have a special loophole. Well, Jesus said, love your enemy, but not this enemy. If he knew what this guy did, then he wouldn't say that, you know. And their worldview can, can fluctuate, you know. It's okay to, 
to kill babies in the womb because we have conveniently decided they're not human beings, and so our conscience is fine. I can live any lifestyle I want, any way I want, and everyone, including God, just has to accept it. And if we're determined enough, we can convince ourselves that we see in the Bible exactly what we want to see rather than what is there, and nothing there needs to change us. And James says that's not how the Bible works. That's not how Scripture works if it is to save you. You see, their idea, the people that look at the Scripture and don't come away changed, their idea of God doesn't challenge them or press them to conform in any way at all. And if some verse they read really does eventually smack them the wrong way hard enough and they can't get around it, well, they just rewrite that verse. Or they claim it's not authentic. Or they, they, set, they, they just set the book down. They set the Bible down and they just don't open it up anymore and look into it. And those types of people are not letting the mirror change them. They're bending the mirror to fit their reflection. Rather than conform to the reflection of the perfect mirror of the law, they bend the law to reflect them the way they want to be seen. There's times, maybe right now in your life, Christian, where you're not reading your Bible because it bothers you. You don't want to look in the mirror. Or what you're doing and what it says doesn't reflect well, and so the Bible as a mirror just stays untouched on your shelf. In fact, the only Bible content perhaps some of you are getting because you don't want to look into the Bible is you're just getting the kind of feel-good meme verses that you see on your Facebook feed that are cherry-picked out of context to never rub you the wrong way. And, and those are nice. You're scrolling through Facebook, and you get those nice, encouraging, you know, verses on Facebook, and they make you feel good, and they inflate your sense of well-being and satisfaction, because nobody goes on Facebook to get convicted or challenged. But that's not reading your Bible, okay? You cannot replace reading your Bible with just whatever comes across your Facebook feed. You might as well just be looking at, you know, cats hanging from a limb saying, hang in there. So how does it work then? How should the scripture work? James is saying, it's not a mirror that you go away and forget what you look like. It's a mirror that you look into and you look into that mirror and it reflects back to you who you are and then you go away changed. So how does the scripture supposed to work? How does James want this to work as a fix to the problem of their shaky faith? Well, first of all, you have to actually look into the word. That means listen to it on Sundays, read it every day you can, maybe read it twice a day, go to it when you have a question about life, go to it when you have a question about yourself, let the Bible inform your point of view instead of letting Facebook or YouTube or whatever is applauded by the culture of the moment inform your point of view. Turn every sphere of your life over to the Bible and let the Bible influence every sphere of your life. As Christians... The Bible has something to say about every aspect of our being, and it will transform every aspect of our doing. So that means that when you open up the Bible and it says something like, do not be intoxicated with strong drink, but be filled with the Spirit in Ephesians 5.8, then let that be reflected in your attitude towards alcohol and drugs and self-control and in your actual doing in your life, that God wants us to be free from disorientation and confusion and dependency on self-medication and be free in his life-giving spirit. Or if you're having difficulty in your family and you don't know what to do with your grumpy parents who are causing you a hard time, and then you read, you know, honor your father and your mother. It's the fourth commandment. It comes before do not murder. Probably a reason for that. Okay? Honor your father and your mother. 
Do not plot to kill them. And on the other side of it, parents, do not frustrate your children to anger. See, the Bible informs our parenting. It informs our childrening, or whatever it is that we are when we're children. It informs our relationships. When we read, run away from sexual immorality in 1 Corinthians 6.18, we actually do run away from sexual immorality. And we also discover, if we keep reading the Bible, that there's a transformed way of thinking about our sexual identity as image bearers of God and the good purpose that God has in how he created us, the way that we are. And he wants to protect us and not have us enslaved to out-of-control passions or out-of-control cultural pressures. When we read, forgive those who harm us and love our enemies in Matthew 6, 12, we don't make up excuses as to why we're exempt, but we wrestle with the resentment and with the regret in our lives and the desire that we have to hang on to animosity and we learn why God wants to cleanse us of that and set us free of that every part of our lives when it says to give to the poor to not be make an idol out of money it informs our finances every sphere of our life is informed by being held up to the mirror of God's scripture we actually read and act on what we read it's that simple and yet we find it difficult to do James points out a lot of potential cracks in the foundation of our faith with this simple mirror analogy. If we simply hold up the Bible and let it change us, it affects and it points out the cracks of self-idolatry, the cracks of intellectual dishonesty, the cracks of stubbornness and arrogance in our approach to the word rather than meekness and humility, the cracks of our being conformed to the influence of the world rather than the influence of the word. All of these cracks appear when you simply hold up the Bible and look into it and ask yourself, is it changing me? Is it influencing me? But James says, if you understand and approach this implanted word of God rightly, it will result for you, it will be for your benefit in two ways, liberty and blessing. This is important. James says, but the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, in other words, it actually takes effect, he will be blessed in his doing. And here James points us to two of the most overlooked or misunderstood realities of the law or the word in the Christian life. And it's these two things. And if you don't come away from anything else other than read your Bible, come away with that. If you don't come away with anything else, come away with this today. The law, following the law is freedom, and the commandments are the blessing. Okay, we get this wrong. That's why this is important. So important. To not be confused about this, about the law of God. Almost by default, we are convinced that the law is something that we have to do in order to be set free. Like if we obey God well enough, God will grant us salvation. As though he's a prison warden who's granting parole to well-behaved inmates. And that's what we think. We think if we obey the law enough, we'll get the reward of freedom, of liberty. And secondly, we think that the commandments are a set of tasks that we must accomplish in order to receive blessing, as though if we get all of our tedious chores and our homework done, then God will give us ice cream and let us watch TV. So the commandments are a burden, you just get those done so that then God can say, great, now I can bless you because you did my commands. 
And if that is how you think God set up the law and the commandments, then understand this. It is going to be very hard to maintain a love for God, who would do that, and a love for the law and joy in the commandments. Because both of those ideas that I just outlined do damage to the glory of God and to his law. Those faults in the foundation of our faith, if we think that the law is something that we have to perform in order to, in order to get liberty, and if we think commandments are chores that we do so that God rewards us with blessing, those fundamental faults in our faith will undermine our love for the law and our love for God and our power to obey it. But that is not how the law and the commandments work. That is not the foundation that God set our faith on. And that's how it works. As you read your Bible more carefully, you will discover that the law is liberty and that we follow the law after we are already set free by God. We do not follow the law in order to deserve our freedom. The law is instruction on how to live in the freedom that God has given us. It's very different. The law of liberty or the Torah of freedom, the word Torah, you know, that's the Hebrew word for the law, is instruction on how to live. And secondly, doing the commandments of the law are themselves a blessing. Obedience to the commandments are not a means by which we earn a blessing. Following the commandments is our blessing. The commandments describe for us a blessed way of living, an active way of living in secure, joyful, abundant life so that obeying the commandments and living your life by the commandments is the blessing. The blessing doesn't come after you follow the commandments. Following the commandments blesses you. And that is fundamentally different. And God's law has always functioned this way. Even if you want to process this law or Torah in the Old Testament context, keep in mind here that God did not give Israel the law while they were enslaved in Egypt and then said to Israel, you know, live up to my law while you are in slavery in Egypt, and if you perform my law well enough, then I will set you free. No, that's not how it happened. While in the midst of slavery, Israel did not clean up their act. They did not start worshiping God any better. They did not follow the law in any particular way and then earn their release from slavery. Rather, we can go back and you know the story. God set Israel free. He had mercy on them in their slavery, set them free from their slavery, brought them out of Egypt to Mount Sinai, and then he gave them the law and said, you're out of slavery, you're back with me, this is the instruction on how to live in your new freedom. That's how the law works. The law follows after the mercy of God. It follows after freedom. It follows as a way of preserving freedom. And Israel was kept free until they ignored the law. Every time Israel ignored the law, they slid back into slavery. But as long as they preserved the law, they lived in freedom and life and abundance. So the law did not set Israel free. God did. But the law was life and blessing to them as long as they obeyed it. It's important that Christians see both of these realities of the law. The law is not a solution for your sin. The law cannot set you free from the slavery of sin on its own because as Paul says in Romans 8.3, it is weakened by our flesh. You and the law are not enough to set you free. But God has taken action to set you free. Paul says in the full verse, 
For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. You see, so, so the law is not going to set you free. God is going to set you free. That's what's going to happen. God is going to set you free through Jesus Christ. But the law doesn't disappear. The law is the way in which you live in freedom. God replaced the weak point in salvation with a better substitute, with Jesus. And now we can be set free from sin, but the law is still good. Paul says Romans, in Romans 7, he says the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. The law is good. In fact, if you look into the word and you persevere in following the word, James says, remember, you will be blessed in your doing. Not blessed after your doing, blessed in your doing. I have to wrap up here, but James brings this lesson back around to anger and to the right kinds of activity of fruitful people will exhibit. He says, if you look into the law and you understand the law, that it doesn't set you free, but it is the law of living in freedom, and you understand that it's not the law that you follow in order to get a blessing, but following the law is a blessing, that his commands are a blessing to you, then what will happen is that you will no longer be angry, And you will now have love and compassion and purity. This is how he concludes. He says, if anyone thinks he's religious and does not bridle his tongue, that's the anger part, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and keep oneself unstained from the world. What's the summary here? Right. Basically, James says, if you look into that word and you persevere, if you let it change you, then it will take the anger out of you. It will change your behavior. And it will change how you act. It will make you pure. You will keep yourself unstained from the world. And you're going to start acting with compassion. He uses the examples of visiting orphans and widows in their affliction here. But he's talking about becoming a compassionate person, becoming a merciful person. If looking into the word does not release you from being angry, if you can't bridle yourself, then you are deceived. Your faith is cracked badly. And it's also a worthless religion if there's no deeds of love or compassion or evidence of purity. John picks up on this. The disciple John says it this way, but if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. And this is the commandment or law or instruction or word that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, the son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as he has commanded us. So you see, James and and John are in agreement here. This this is how you know that you love, the love of Jesus is in you, is you're following his commandments. And here's the result of James's inspection. Here are his concerns. That, it, that it's possible that some people have heard the gospel. There's some people in the church that even understand how the gospel works very well. They can tell you what the gospel is. They can tell you how the gospel works. They can tell you about the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. They can tell you about repenting of sin. They can talk to you uh, in perfect accuracy about the gospel. But they haven't received it. It's not been implanted in them for their salvation. They know it, they've looked at it, they've read it, they've studied it, but it hasn't changed a thing. And that's James's concern, is that you've looked into the scripture, you've looked into the law, you've looked into the commandments, and then like a natural man, you've walked away from the mirror and you've forgotten what you actually read there and what you saw. 
They're not putting off their old filth and malice. They're not receiving the word. They look at the word and they walk away and they forget it. And it doesn't take root and then there's no change. No sphere of their Christian life is being impacted. They still spend money the same way on the same things. They still treat their parents the same way. They still treat their kids the same way. They still treat their wife the same way. They still do all the same things that they did before. Nothing has changed. They look at the word. They can explain the word. They understand that, yes, I'm a sinner and I should repent and God loves me. And they can explain all the theology, but nothing changes. And James says, that's worthless. That's not real faith. You look into the law, and there's no doing, then there is no being a child of God. Or they look into the law, and they don't see liberty. They look into the law, and they see a burden. They don't see blessing. They see obligation. The law is not a burden placer. It is a burden lifter. The instruction of the law is our freedom, and it is our blessing. And the one who has the word of God implanted in them, when they look into the word of God and they look into it, they see liberty and they see blessing. They do not see burden, and they do not see obligation. As John Piper writes in his book, Providence, the good news of the gospel is this. That obedience to the law is not repealed, it's promised. You see, Jesus has come to defeat our enemy, sin and death. Give us his spirit and make us able to obey the law. Make this adjustment in your mind. We don't have to obey the law, we get to obey the law. We don't have to obey the law, we get to obey the law. Because before we're saved and before we receive the spirit, we can't even obey the law. We look at the law and we see that it's good. Yeah, don't murder, you know, don't covet, don't be jealous, you know, don't be, you know, have idols in the world. Like, wow, it would be great. But when, when we are enslaved to sin, we can't obey. And Jesus has come not to say you don't have to do the law. I've come so that you are able to actually get to do the law. The perfect law of Christ that makes these kinds of demands of us, like love your neighbor, forgive your enemies, care for the needy, honor one another, outdo each other in kindness, embrace mercy. Oh, what terrible law to follow. You see, the law is freedom and the law is blessing. Follow the law of God. It's not an obligation and a burden. Look into the perfect mirror of God's word. And who is reflected there? Whose image is really on display when we look into the word of God from cover to cover. He said it. He told us. Whose image is in there? Jesus. When you look into the mirror of God's word, you see Jesus. And you can't turn away unchanged but be transformed moment by moment from one degree of glory to another into the likeness of Christ. Now, do you think the Apostle Paul disagrees with James in any of this? about 10, 15, maybe 20 years later, look what Paul lifted right out of James's teaching. And Paul offers this to the most messed up church on his list, church at Corinth. He says, we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. See, Paul says, this is what's going on. You're looking into the law. You're looking into the word. And what you see there from cover to cover, Jesus says, all of these scriptures speak of me. You're seeing Jesus. And you look into the reflection of Jesus. And Paul says, you're being transformed from one degree of glory to another. Oh, you start out 
hanging on to all that malice and anger and everything else, but you put that off and you receive the implanted word, and from one degree of glory to another, you are slowly being transformed into the image of Christ. And James is basically saying that's how you fix the foundation of a shaky Christian life. That's how you fix the foundation of an unstable church community. He says, look intently into the scriptures. Look intently into the word of God and let those scriptures transform you. See the image of Jesus and be transformed by what you see. Be transformed into who Jesus has made you and do the blessed commandments of the law. That is how you get your foundation stable again. We're born by the will of God and his word. And that word implants us and it grows up into life and blessing for those who persevere. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for your word. Thank you for your law. Thank you that your law is not a whole bunch of things we have to perform in order to measure up to being set free. Thank you that your law is not a chore, that is not a blessing to do, that all of your law is good. And Father, just help us to be faithful people who look into your word every day, twice a day, hear your word, listen to your word, study your word, take every sphere of our life and hold it up to your word, and let your word touch and transform every aspect of our living and doing. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.